I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast where we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So, it is the month of February 2024, and we're at the conclusion of our Frame of Reference event month. Essentially, what we've been doing from week to week is uh, using this month as an excuse to I guess finally get around to reviewing some movies that we often reference on the show. Uh, so this week I had the pick, uh, and for my selection, I decided to go with uh, a movie that I have seen countless times, and apparently Kyle's in the same boat. So that we're in we're in fun territory here. Uh, John Woo's Face Off uh, from 1997. Uh, now, Kyle, I may as well toss it over to you. Um, what is your history with Face Off? Because I actually did not know that you were so familiar with this one, but like, where where does the road begin with you for Face Off? Uh, I had this, uh, give me just a sec here. I had this, I believe, uh, either on VHS or DVD. I, I'm guessing it was VHS, and I had one of those TVs with the built-in VHS player. And I had this movie at my mom's, so every time I go visit my mom, this was just one of like five VHS that I had. And this movie was just on. Like, I just had it on in the background. I think I, it was one of those movies that I had on in the background when I play guitar. Like, the volume would be low, but there'd just be, you know, something on in the background. Um, yeah, I've seen this movie. I, like I said before, I'm like, this might be the most watched movie that I've seen. Like, I've, I've seen this movie so many times. Uh, and I was, I barely reviewed this <laughs> prior to recording because I'm like, I... It's almost like watching Jim Carrey's The Mask. Like, I've seen this movie so many times, I don't need to watch it again. I know it by heart. Um, I don't know if it holds up the same, but there is something quite engaging about it because I was trying to fast-track this in an hour, just, like, hit the bullet points, and I started getting sucked in. Like, I was getting drawn in pretty hard. And I'm like, shit, I gotta, you gotta stop. You're like, you, have to, you have to keep going because you just need to, I just need the, the cliff notes on this one. <laughs> yeah, it sucks you right in. Uh, it has that effect. It has that special nostalgia sauce, I think, for, for people of our relative age range who, who saw it a lot when it was kind of newish. Um, in my case, uh, this was, I think, one of the earlier R-rated movies I saw, all of which have kind of a special place in my heart. Um, I think T2 may have been the very first, uh, followed shortly thereafter by Aliens, although I get my wires crossed because I do remember watching Under Siege 2 colon Dark Territory in a in a chintzy motel room with my parents, <laughs> like when we were on some like road trip vacation or something, maybe in Oregon. So that one actually might sneakily be the first one. But anyway, Face Off, uh, I remember hearing about it because my parents went on a date night. Uh, remember, this is 1997, so I was about 10 years old at the time. Uh, they went to like the drive-in or something, and they, oh, nice. they went to see a double feature. And I don't, unfortunately, I don't remember what the other film was, but Face Off was the other one. Um, and they were raving about it. They had a great time at the theater watching it. Um, so it carried this mystique for me. I was like, oh, I'm 10 years old. I'm not quite ready to be watching R-rated action movies, but I, I'm going to dog-ear this one as one that I'd very much like to get to. And sure enough, uh, when I got to it just a few short years later, uh, fuck, I love this movie. <laughs> uh, kind of similar to The Mask of Zorro from last week. I kind of love Face Off. <laughs> 
it's kind of great. Quick question: Have you have you gone to the? Did you go to the drive-in much as a kid? Uh, no, I I did go to the theater every so often, not all the time. Um, it was kind of like almost like an annual thing for me. Like around the time I was twelve or thirteen, I actually started like asking for that as like my birthday, basically. Like in in lieu of like going to like a a big event or something like a like a discovery zone or a chuck e cheese or something i would just ask to go to see a movie because memorial day weekend is my birthday Ah. and a lot of big summer movie releases used to happen around then maybe not so much these days um but like the lost world Mm -hmm. uh was around then and uh godzilla 1998 the unfortunate godzilla 1998 that my mother uh, apologized to me after walking out of the theater on my birthday (laughs) Um, but the drive-thru, no, I think the only real memory I have of going to the drive-thru as a kid was, uh, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Oh, man. Ugh. Yeah, oh, man is right. I don't, I don't remember a lick of that movie other than they make the mom big at the end, and that's how they save the day. Um, yeah, that's the movie. Oh, yeah, and he plays guitar. The the kid plays a giant, like, neon guitar at some point. (laughs) Jeez, you might as well have seen the son of the mask in uh, in, the, in the drive-in at that point. Um, I ask, <laughs> only ask because my brother and I, I, I would highly recommend in the summertime if you can find a good drive-in, go tr- go try it. Take the girlfriend. It's it's a lot of fun. I loved it as a kid. We saw Armageddon in the drive-in, and that was the first time I saw a shooting star. It was like the perfect time. I think my, Nick saw it too, and my dad. Uh, it was a cool little moment, but also the, whoever was running the drive-in at the time was asleep behind the wheel because we saw me, myself, and Irene in the drive-in. We watched a grown man breastfeed <laughs> on yes, a giant did. screen. <laughs> on a giant screen. I remember my parents distinctly. They were like, "Oh my gosh!" Like they were laughing so hard, but they were like, "This is not appropriate for them." But they're like. We're not leaving. Like we're gonna finish we this. Paid. We paid. We're watching this, and they're just like, uh, "Damage is done, guys. We we know this was too much for you, but we're we're gonna finish this movie." I I, I remember them making that decision. Yeah, I'll I'll speak for him, uh, being as he's not here. But uh, Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast, I know uh, he, he often reviews like in theater movies for his mm. podcast. Yeah. Um, I know during the height of COVID. Uh, like the early days, um, the drive, the drive-in was the mm-hmm. way to go for going to see movies. Yeah. Uh, so I think he saw like the Trolls movie, Ugh. and but unhinged, unhinged, starring uh, pudgy Russell Crowe, mm. I, i.e. Th- the superior Russell Crowe, the best Russell Crowe, the best iteration of Russell Crowe is when he's a little paunchy. I love that Russell Crowe. Um, that movie's great. That movie saved cinema. <laughs> Unhinged was that him loosening his jaw so he could get the whole foot long down his throat? <laughs> I want to get the whole hoagie. Is, is that the Road Rage movie? Yes, it is. Okay, I might have to check that it's out. It's spectacular. That, 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 I might have to check that out. But yeah, anyway, it's sorry. It's spectacular. I, anyway, yeah, I digress. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, the, the girlfriend will get some brownie points with you because uh, for, I think, like our, like our dating anniversary... Uh, she arranged for us to go see uh, uh, Wayne's World in the oh. drive-in. Oh, really? And yeah, I don't think she'd ever seen it either. Oh man, yeah, that's, and that was great. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Good move. Anyway, yeah, she's yeah. a keeper. <laughs> anyway, yeah. uh, Face Off. Yes, uh, is of course from director John 
John Woo. I almost said John Travolta. He didn't direct this film. No. He's in it, though. Um, this, I believe, was his third American feature film. Uh, this was He was part of the Hong Kong exodus, I guess you'd call it, where there were a bunch of very talented Hong Kong filmmakers who, eh, just a handful of years prior to the 1997 handover of, of the city of Hong Kong from the British government back to China, um, decided to start working outside of China. Um, so he came over here. Uh, we actually reviewed uh, his his American debut, uh, Ard Target, uh, or Hard Target, if you will, uh, starring JCVD. Um, and then he would move on to do Broken Arrow, also featuring John Travolta and Christian Slater, both actors who he has worked with more than once. Um, John Travolta twice, I think, and uh, I, Slater uh, twice as well. Uh, he was also in Wind Talkers, if memory serves. He was in Wind Talkers? Um, yeah, I believe he was the the co-star. I think it was Nick Cage and Christian Slater in there oh, as the two as, as the two times. Caucasians in that movie, yeah. uh, not the Adam Beaches uh, of of the cast. Um, but yeah, this was this was a a very big event for John Woo and his American film career because, as far as I understand, and it is evident just in simply watching the film, like you don't even have to have deep insight into this to know this. Um, the level of creative control that was granted to him on this film, as opposed to Broken Arrow and Hard Target, seems to be elevated. Like this, unlike those other two films, this feels like John Woo through and through. Those other two feel, in fits and spurts, like like familiar work from his filmography. But this one stands almost like shoulder to shoulder, especially thematically, with his Hong Kong filmography. And For funny sure. enough, we have actually reviewed a couple of his Hong Kong films, uh, if you're so inclined to check them out. Uh, the Killer and Hard Boiled. Uh, the Killer especially bears some resemblance to this film in some regards. Uh, John Woo is a very theme-heavy director, and uh, most of his major themes, if not all of them, uh, come out to play uh, in some form or another in this film. But anyway, uh, this movie made a shit ton of money. It was a huge success. Uh, and if you ask me, it's just kind of all around a really fun, great movie in a lot of respects. Like, it has a lot to offer. It's it's an actor's film, but it's also an action film. And on top of that, it's also a very sincere John Woo film. Like, it again, it, it feels like one of his Hong Kong films, which is not something you can say about all of his American films. But anyway... Uh, where do you want to go from here, Kyle? Because in terms of like production background, I don't have a whole lot to share other than this was a spec script, which you had mentioned The Mask and Son of the Mask earlier. I feel it bears mention that uh, this is actually written by one of the people who wrote The Mask. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, funny enough. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't see a resemblance in any regard, like in terms of the tone of their work or anything, but hey, connections, revolutions. Dark dark ass villain uh, i could tell you that much <laughs> there's a yeah, dark hmm, actually hmm, dark ass villain two-faced individuals people with multiple like different mm -hmm. shades to their personality kind of like jekyll and hyde kind of shit going yeah yeah okay yeah we got something going yeah um i want i guess the, the the best place to start would be uh our leading men because this is a <laughs> this is an interesting time in both of their careers uh because nick cage i think is the the person to start with. This, I think, is the first. I think he's gone mad. Uh, I think he's gone cross-eyed. Uh, <laughs> because everything up until this point, I think. I mean, I think. Did he have an Oscar at this by this point? 
I believe he was at leaving Las Vegas. Uh, yeah. That had happened already. Yeah. So this, what Kyle is alluding to here is this was a a slice of Nick Cage's career that was only like a three-year span of time, but it was game-changing. Like, it completely changed mm-hmm. the, the rest of his career for, yes. forevermore. Because up until this point, he'd, he'd worked with the Coenses, he got an Oscar for Best Actor, he had done all the real super hardcore legit acting stuff, but from like 1996 to like 1998, he decided to become Action Man. Mm-hmm. And we had The Rock, we had this, and we had Con Air. Yeah. And that's that's all she wrote. Like from from there from there on out, like the kinds of roles that he would he would start taking would become wildly diverse. <laughs> well, let's just say he has Trapped in Paradise, Leaving Las Vegas, The Rock, Con Air, Face Off, City of Angels, Snake Eyes, Eight Millimeter, Bringing Out the Dead, which I do believe is a Martin Scorsese film, and right. then Gone in Sixty Seconds, The Family Man, which I've seen. And then, <laughs> did it hurt you, Kyle? Jesus. Yeah, it was, it was awful. Uh, and then, like, I've seen wind, it too. Wind Talkers adaptation, Matchstick Men. I mean, like, that's from ninety. Let's say we'll go. We'll start from The Rock. We won't even start from Leaving Las Vegas. From ninety six to two thousand four, it's more or less bangers. Like those are all. I'm not saying they're all good movies, but I'm sure they all made money. Yeah, I, I want to say that the the decision to take on like these action blockbuster roles for a chunk of time was, was very deliberate. Um, it really kicked open the door for granting him access to those kinds of roles for kind of like taking his typical like unconventional look and and performance style and making it legitimate, like like making it palatable to producers, where it's like, oh yeah, he can headline one of these movies. And these days, it's like, yeah, you can, in in case of emergency, insert cage, and more than likely, he'll give you something. And more than likely, he'll be willing to work because he's got islands and he's got dinosaur fossils that he's got to finance. <laughs> yeah. John Travolta, I think at this time, it's kind of weird. I think, I mean, it's been said that Quentin Tarantino kind of revived his career with, uh, with Pulp Fiction, which I'm going to have to watch with Steph because she has yet to see that film. She... I feel like that's kind of one of those like if you're not if you're not super into movies it's fine but I think it, it's still important to see because it was it was a cultural phenomenon like phenomenon uh, actually is on here <laughs> <laughs> kind of like phenomenon but not really because nobody yeah. cares about phenomenon but I recognize the films like Get Shorty Broken Arrow Phenomenon Michael I remember Michael was a controversial. I remember the marketing for Michael was everywhere and yeah in your neck of the woods I bet yeah, some people had some thoughts about Michael <laughs> oh they did um <laughs> But yeah, like he's got a couple. Like I think Thin Red Line is supposed to be a pretty good film. I've never seen it, but uh, yeah, General Zod. It's one of those uh, one of those more contemplative war movies that Mm -hmm. you know the mouth breathers don't talk about because they probably haven't seen it. Mm. But it is it is a good film. Anyway, is it more like Full Metal Jacket? Or nothing's like yeah, the metal jacket, really. But probably probably even like more restrained, like more with like drawn back. It's probably more. It's Jarhead. Yeah, it, it. Yeah, more akin to like a jarhead. Okay. Yeah, those are more interesting. I find. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Battlefield Earth. I think like he he the the spark. QT got him the spark, and he got it got the flame going, and he got that fire building, and then Battlefield Earth just whoosh, 
just snuffed it right out. I'm just picturing Chris Farley with with that dinner roll. He's like, I I, I need it. Yep. And I massage <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I killed it. I killed my career. He did. Uh, <laughs> gosh. And honestly, he. He could have come back from that, but then he did Be Cool in 2005, and now he deserves to be where he's at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, John Travolta is... His career is defined by ups and downs. Uh, I, for whatever reason, always find him to be a compelling performer. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm, I'm not saying he's great by any means. It's just, in most cases, when he shows up, he, I, can, I can feel him trying. Like, he reaches further than your average player in Hollywood. So, like, when it comes to, like, direct-to-video Drek featuring John Travolta, that's actually a bit of a selling point for me. Like, in some cases, I will roll my eyes at that kind of stuff. But when it when it's him, usually I'll check it out. Um, but, yeah, his his career is just, just a series. Of, it's a fucking roller coaster. Yeah. I mean, um, what was it? Staying Alive in the 80s. Stallone kind of, like, brought him back from the brink and... and directed him in a sequel to um was it saturday night fever Mm -hmm. and i guess he got into like great shape for that also that that's another thing too is his his physicality his physique is -hmm. kind of like symbolic of where he's at in terms of his career health yeah it's like he'll in this one he's he's starting to fill out a bit (laughs) he's he's starting to get a little soft but then like by the time you get to basic which is a box office failure for some reason he was like crazy fit for that performance Anyway, long story short, I find him to be compelling, but like Hollywood and and general movie going audiences seem to be kind of like hot and cold with him. I would like to cover his older movies. I, I haven't wanted to watch Saturday Night Fever. I would like you to watch Grease at some point. Um, oh yeah, I need to. Urban just for Cow- cultural knowledge. Yeah, Urban Cowboy and Blowout were other two other movies that I wanted to see. Um, he, we could easily Blow- do Blowout is fantastic. I've heard. I can vouch for that. Yeah, like, so this, I think this is the, I think he's totally fine in this movie until he starts being Caster Troy. I, I think that's the kind of the problem of this movie. Yeah, I would say that he, there's certain there's certain moments where he nails it, and then there's certain moments where he doesn't. Where Mm -hmm. it's like he's taking chances all the way through. But it's not paying off very consistently because there are some there are some great like subtle dialogue deliveries where it's like I see Cage, mm-hmm. but then he takes things for a walk and and he does the trailer lines like the what a predicament mm-hmm. and stuff, and I start to like I start to see a, a Looney Tunes character that it just feels like it's from a different movie or something and it's it's too big it's too wild, uh, but like I said it, it's inconsistent so it's not like a total failure of a performance. Um, but when it gets bad, it does get slightly cringy, honestly. Yeah, I, I'm kind of, I kind of wish that Nicolas Cage would have just kept going with this character. Like, I wish that the movie would have just. I, I understand the movie has to have them switch and have them play each other, but Nick Cage as Caster Troy is. Could you imagine two and a half hours of that? It would just be bananas. I mean, I'll, I should probably mention this right now. Um, the Wikipedia page for this film does state that there are reports of a sequel, potentially, um, directed by Adam Wingard, who 
I think is known primarily as a, a horror film director, but lately he's been headlining, he's been directing the Godzilla movies, like Godzilla vs. Kong and the new Godzilla vs. Kong thing that's coming out this year. Um, I don't know how true these rumors are that there's potentially a follow-up to this movie on the horizon. Um, but yeah, actually, that would be a movie I would definitely watch. <laughs> Two hours of Caster Troy minus Sean Archer. <laughs> yeah. It's like like just a prequel or something of just wild at like young and wild Caster Troy and Pollux Troy farting around town. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be fucking crazy. <laughs> this is one of those movies that my buddy Bob and I know really well, and he <clears throat> will get like obscure little movie quotes like. He did the uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio in the beach when he steals that bandana, and he does like the. <laughs> he just did that randomly <laughs> one day. I'm like, only I would get that, but uh, we would do the uh, bye bye bro with the pinky. Bye bye bro. Bye bye bro. <laughs> bye, bro. People are like, what the fuck are you guys doing? You wouldn't get I it. can picture that like somebody's leaving work early or something. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye bro. Um, super fun it helps that so many of the performances in this movie like the major performances anyway like have some measure of eccentricity to them Mm -hmm. and these deliveries are unique which makes them memorable because alessandro nivola i don't know what direction he was receiving if any but he for his like six lines of dialogue in this movie virtually everything he says and the way he comports himself on screen is extremely memorable that would be pollux troy i was gonna say is that pollux yeah yeah the the douchebag with the parachute from jurassic park 3 yeah alan alan (laughs) speaking of assholes who sabotage the entire expedition um i think this is a perfect segue into what i wanted to discuss was the uh soundtrack steph and i watched uh, interstellar last night uh oh your boy my boy hans zimmer of course uh, absolutely crushes that entire film. Like, the soundtrack to that movie is second to none. But one thing that I notice, and I think it adds to the tension of the film, is it is always present. It is it is throughout the entire film. Every Almost every single frame has some kind of music in the background. And I was kind of surprised when I was... The parts that I was watching at the beginning, like, there's like this... There's just music, like, over the just in the background almost the entire time like this this whole build up to them going to get him there's just always music and it was it was making me anxious i noticed that it was making me anxious throughout the film both interstellar and face off <laughs> interesting um funny enough uh, our tales from the shelf uh for this month um our live stream that we do once a month uh with brad from the cinema speak podcast uh, we just did that the other day and we were talking about uh like nostalgic movie scores um and i actually brought up face off that was kind of the jumping off point honestly um the score is done by john powell uh who is kind of a personal favorite of mine he's not so much active these days i i i think of him as being the property of the dreamworks studio basically he does like kung fu panda and like how to train your dragon he did ants back in the day if you remember that one. Oh yeah i remember that oh yeah well we remember ants <laughs> i remember ants yeah fuck a bug's life never a big fan of that one <laughs> actually a bug's life is a bug's life's the superior film uh but i disagree one ha- one has woody one has woody allen one has kevin spacey so you take your pick <laughs> there's no winners there. there's no winners there <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, John Powell's, I, I've always liked his action scores. His work on the Bourne films is tremendous. Um, I, I've, I'm actually kind of lukewarm on those movies, but the scores for them, I think, are fantastic. Um, and this movie was kind of the beginning of, of my journey with John Powell. Like, I think this was the earliest score of his I heard. Um, and yeah, it is ever-present. It is bombastic. Uh, it's highly thematic. Like a lot of the characters and emotional beats are, are highlighted um, through the music. Um, act during any any action beat in the movie, it is a, assaulting you with sound. It like, is is very overbearing. Um, and John Woo strikes me as a director who he's a music man. Um, <laughs> case in no, uh, really, there's certain directors who like. Scorsese, for instance, he has his his vinyl collection or whatever that yeah. he just kind of listens to, and he he's a he is the master of the needle drop. Like he mm -hmm. always knows exactly what song needs to go where in the edit of his films. In John Woo's case, like I I think it's worth pointing out that Hard Boiled, the character Tequila, is a jazz musician. I think I think he plays a clarinet. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Beautiful that opening shot, Kyle. Mm -hmm. The slam, the slow motion slam. Mm. Uh, I don't yeah. drink, but that that shit makes good. me wanna. <laughs> it looks pretty fucking good. It looks like Alka Seltzer. Don't tell me you didn't want to drink Alka Seltzer when you saw those commercials oh, when you were a kid. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, I I think music is something that he values. So it doesn't surprise me that he would make a film with such a, a noisy soundscape with with that highlights so much of its emotionality and it's, and punctuates so much of its beats with with music on top of the the visuals and stuff um yeah the uh <laughs> the plot of this movie is i explained it to steph do you oh, just i think that there should be can we just have like a something where people explain the plot of 80s and 90s movies to like the younger generation and like big what? trouble in little china go yeah <laughs> face off go jurassic park go <laughs> flubber go Seriously? it's like flubber. <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> but no that flubber that's not fair but this like this is explain this to somebody it's like a an FBI agent who is about a foot taller than his nemesis <laughs> is going to take off, is going to surgically remove his face and put it onto him so that he can go to a black site prison and ask his brother where a bomb is hidden and then go through all that just to find out where this bomb is and come back and then switch the faces back out is the plan. And you're like... I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you ever seen Sicario? How about you just call Benicio Del Toro? Dude, probably you'll, you'll, pro you'll probably be able to tell you where that bomb is real quick. <laughs> that Yeah, no kidding. That movie is... <laughs> I rewatched it, and I want to rewatch it again. I'm like, God damn it, it's such a good... He's so good in that movie. Yes, he is. Mm. Yes, he is. Um, yeah. You want to hear what the producers of Face Off felt would... would convey all of this to the public in the most efficient manner kyle oh please so in order to foil a terrorist plot an fbi agent undergoes facial transplant surgery and assumes the identity of a criminal mastermind the plan turns sour when the criminal wakes up prematurely and seeks revenge uh, the tagline is in order to trap him he must become him mm. um which 
I think kind of betrays the film in some regards. It's like that that works for if you're if you're doing like a straightforward thriller or something. But no, this is a John Woo movie. We are we're doing guns akimbo, people jumping through the air on trampolines and shit with explosions and wire work and whatnot. Well, um, you know, I, I think we I, I, walk with me here. So trailers <laughs> trailers used to lie to us. Like they used to fib. Like they're like, we're gonna tell you this is what the movie's about, and then you get to the movie and you're like, this isn't really what the movie's about. And nowadays, when you see trailers, there's no question about what you're going to see because they're two and a half minutes long. There's five of them, and you know the plot before you even get to the film. I've yet to be surprised, except I think Nightmare Alley was the only one I'm like. I don't really know what's going on in this movie. They didn't tell me what it was, but I don't know what's happening. And then it's it's a great movie because you don't know what's going to happen. But maybe they started making trailers so that you don't get that response from people. It's like I thought that I thought this was going to be something completely different, and then I saw the movie, or I thought this is what I thought the movie was going to be, and then you go in and it's something completely different. Because yeah, I I could see this being a very misleading trailer too. I'm guessing you watched the trailer for this as well. Oh, yeah, I remember it being on TV when I was a kid. I mean, that wee, what a predicament. Wee! <laughs> what a predicament! It was uh, borderline obnoxious. Honestly, I think I remember my brother groaning at that. Um, yeah. And then, of course, the, the shot with them standing back to back against the, the, oh, yeah. the mirror, the pillar. That was iconic. And, yeah, I, I feel like the, the enigmatic marketing style was in vogue in the 90s. There were a lot of things where they would... They would ask you questions. They, like the the narrator, the, the announcer would actually ask you, the audience, questions. They'd be like, "Like who knows what evil lurks inside the hearts of men, or whatever." What is the Matrix? Or like, what the fuck is Godzilla? What's he gonna look like? We're oh, not gonna show yeah, you in the trailer because nah. you're gonna be real disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh. And like Deep Rising, it's like it's a tentacle beast, maybe. And then you watch the movie, it's like, whoa, it's a sea slug tentacle beast with teeth and whatnot. And going back to my story at the top of the uh, of the podcast, the marketing for me, myself, and Irene just looked like a fun, this just looks like a fun Jim Carrey movie. There's no way he's going to be breastfeeding in this movie and talking about kids' penises. Like, it's fucking nuts. Uh, yeah, maybe... Kyle's not wrong. That is a wow. very raunchy film. Wow. Like, wow raunchy film. <laughs> it would even, it would, it would blow the toupees off of people nowadays, like, what <laughs> if you were to release that now that'd be crazy um, especially with john like with jim carrey's like reputation yeah it's, it's like we have entered a new phase oh it's a <laughs> whole different phase um anyway uh any other players in the cast you want to talk about or just you just want to talk about some stuff that happens in the movie that you think is pretty memorable um yeah i do want to talk about um, a couple of the other characters. Uh, no, I'm on uh, Interstellar. By the way, when I was saying uh, people that mess up the entire expedition and Hathaway's character brand in Interstellar really uh, fucks things up in that movie. Um, <laughs> we have an amazing cast, by the way, of small bit players in this movie. That That's kind of the magic of revisiting movies from from this time period. Is is I don't know what it, what it was, but there are just so many memorable like character actors mm-hmm. who if you look back on these movies from the 90s and you more important you were kind of around for that time period like revisiting them now it's like wow i recognize like everyone in this room like from mm-hmm. scene to scene it's pretty incredible anyway go on um joan so interesting uh um i think the person to start with would be nick cassavetes uh who directed alpha dog and the notebook 
um, Dominique Swain, who's in this movie, was in Alpha Dog. And then yes. um, Joan Allen is in The Notebook. She's the mean mom. She's the one that I think hides the letters. Spoiler you know, alert. I've never seen The Notebook. You're fine. Um, it's not I've, good. Yeah, I think I missed the boat on that one. There was um, never I a think boat. I remember her... I think I remember her from Pleasantville. Yeah, that, that, that was what I was going to say. It was Pleasantville. She did that the year after. Yeah, Pleasantville, for some reason, was like a big deal to me. Like, I, I remember wanting to see that movie when I was a kid. Uh, I think it was because I watched a lot of Nick at Night with, with my grandma and stuff. Mm. So I was like, oh, it looks interesting. And then sure oh. enough, I saw it, and I was like, I kind of like this movie. She's the mom from Josh and Sam, S-A-M. <laughs> she She has good mom energy. Like in, yeah, term, she, in terms of her look and her performance style, she's really good at being a mom on screen. She looks like my great-grandmother when she was younger. I, every time I see her, she just, yeah. Um, like you said, Alexand- Alexandro Navala. Uh, Billy. Billy! Not that Billy, different Billy. Alan. Alan. <laughs> Alan. <laughs> Gina Gershon, uh, who is... Totally banging her brother, Nick Cassavetes, in this movie. Yeah, actually, the girlfriend. First time watch for the girlfriend. She's like, why is he kissing her on the lips? Mm-hmm. Like, are they brother and sister? Or are they not brother and sister? I just shrugged, and I was like, have you seen his house? I think they're a little weird. I think they're a little <laughs> fucked up. He was excited. Yeah. He, he was excited to see Nicholas. He was excited to see Castro Troy. No one's excited to see Castro Troy. He's the only yeah. person who's excited to see him. Yeah. That's a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dominique Swain is in this. I, I gotta talk about something here. This this was something strange. I didn't really catch because I was a child when I watched this movie, like crazy. So, Castor Troy is in the beginning dressed up like a priest. He's putting in a bomb in the convention center or whatever the hell. And there he's dre- uh, there's a church choir like of children, basically. I noticed this. He goes up to a girl and he definitely gropes her. Like he's grabbing her ass. I'm like, that's a child. If you look to the rest of the the people, those are children. This is a child that he's touching. Okay, so we may as well we may as well kick the door open now because yeah, it. I need to get. It, over we're gonna it. have to get into it at some point. This seems like good time as a. So there's there's about three things that are difficult to stomach in this film by today's standards especially okay let's just get Uh, him out of the way real quick danny masterson yeah fuck off then yeah 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 yeah. danny masterson is in this film uh he is i believe currently imprisoned yes uh, for till the end of his life uh and the things he tries to do in this film he actually did in real life yes uh, oh but, but he yeah he yeah he did them yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, he he is in prison, uh, where he will stay uh, for the remainder of his lifetime, for of his natural existence. Yeah. Um, so that's one. Two, yeah, uh, Nick Cage is grabbing people who look pretty young's butts in this movie. Um, that is a thing that happens. Three is yeah. something that didn't register with me until this most recent viewing, because remember, I was I was like thirteen when I was watching this movie predominantly. Castor Troy is most definitely banging Joan Allen. Um, yeah, like an, an imposter is most definitely sleeping with someone who doesn't know. Yeah, he that he he's get where I'm going with this. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't I didn't notice that when I was young, but as an adult, it's hard not to. Yeah, uh, we do it as tastefully as one can. But it's like, why are we, why do we even allude to it? Because they do like a fade to black, but then they draw 
they almost got away with it but then there's an like an er there's just an errant line of dialogue from her later where she tells her husband who is now wearing a different face we have been living as man and wife for a week implying something there yeah. and it's like oh that's that is vile and fucked yeah um, like, yeah, thing, things that I didn't recognize when I was young that now it's like, oh, wow, that's super dark and fucked up. Well, also just something culturally I think I should talk about real quick. Uh, Dominique Swain. Let, I just talk about her real quick because yeah. we're definitely yeah, sexualizing yeah. her in this movie. There's that really, really creepy scene of Castro Troy's John Travolta definitely like flirting and looking at his like looking at her. This is a 16 or 17 year old girl in her underwear in her room. She's actually 16 or 17 when this is filmed. Same year, mm. she is Lolita. She is the, the titular Lolita. If you know anything about that story, yeah, you'll very much know. We were very much sexualizing a child uh, in 1997, which is just kind of crazy. That that was just, yeah, we're good. We're good with that. I didn't notice it as a kid because they were older than me, so I just assumed, you know, you see an older person, you're like, oh, yeah, they're like, they're like 19 or 20. No, not here. <laughs> Very strange. Yeah, I, I I don't know if it was like a cultural trend at the time or something. We just didn't care. But yeah, yeah, I think that sad to say, but that's probably the case well, in Hollywood. Even I remember Lindsay Lohan being like seventeen and dating Wilder Valderrama, and he was not seventeen. Man, you're bringing it. You're bringing it back to that '70s show. Jesus, yeah. it's all, dude. Yeah, I know. It's, Everything comes back to that '70s show. Yeah. Is is problematic. Uh, John Woo, who directed Kurt with Smith in Broken Arrow, <laughs> I'll get. Everything comes back to that '70s show. It, it just it was on my mind just because it all just kind of, you know, all this just came crashing. I'm like, wait, she was this young. Wait, Danny Masters is in here. Wait, it just it, it was all on my mind. So I'll, I'll we can get out of this lane real quick. But yeah, it was just it was troubling. Go during yeah, the rewatch. this this is just acknowledgement of yeah. of yeah, this this is some unseemly shit that is most definitely highlighted and present in this film that probably was just kind of like kind of like when i was a child watching this movie it's like you kind of just brush past it but like looking at it now it's like whoa wow uh mm -hmm. yeah maybe maybe we could have rode around that somehow <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean really all you'd have to do is age up the daughter a, a bit and it would be that it would be that much it would be slightly more palatable. Like, I, that's all you'd have to do. Like really? make her college age or something. Make her college age, or at least have the actress playing her make her that's an the adult. Thing. That's yeah. that's my yeah. problem with it. Is like have her yeah. be an adult. You can still go with this theme of him being a creepy dad. Let's just not do it with a child. Um, yeah. So Colm, is it Colm Fior? I think that's how it's pronounced, or or maybe it's Fiori, but I've always said Colm Fior. He looks so familiar, but I don't know if I recognize... Keep what you kill, Kyle. You keep what you kill. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's the Chronicles of Riddick. Oh. Um, I, be I believe he is... I think he's Canadian, and he pops up in Canadian shit. Um, he he looks like Anthony Edwards or something, but like with some 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 edges rounded out or something. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, he's in Paycheck. Huh. Look at that. Oh, John Woo. Yeah. Look at that. Uh, John Carroll. Very bad John Woo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John Carroll Lynch not being used correctly. Like, this is just kind of a waste of him. 
Yeah, he plays the warden in the prison in this film, and while he does project the correct, like he plays the role, like mm-hmm. like he he's he's up he's to the mad, assignment. Yeah. It's just like you know, make him give him more. Yeah, like, like he's great, and he's super versatile. On top of that, like he can do whatever you ask him to. Like he can be super intimidating, and he can also be the cuddliest teddy bear you've ever seen. Oh, he's great. Look at Fargo. Fargo. Oh, he's so great. Fargo. <laughs> Look at those ducks. He's a duck painter. <laughs> Uh, well, we got CCH Powder, Robert Wisdom, uh, CCH Powder. I, she's been, I've seen her in a ton of stuff. She's that woman with the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the way, that's the way I describe her. Cause, uh, the girlfriend pointed this out, like her facial features, like it's common to have like a single exaggerated feature or something. In her case, every single one <laughs> is mm. exaggerated. So she has a very dramatic face. Um, and on top of that, she has an awesome voice. Uh-huh. Uh, I think she actually plays a radio host in a film, which makes sense. But she pops up in a lot of sci-fi stuff. Um, and she's also an avatar. Um, she plays like one of like the tribal leader in that. She's oh. the one that has that uh, highly gifable moment where she's like crying at the tree after it gets blown up, and people abuse that gif for various purposes. It's like, dude, that was like a legit dramatic moment. Why are you like? Why are you shitting on it? <laughs> I yeah, I don't remember anything from those movies. I've seen both of them, but I don't I don't recall. Sorry, James Cameron. Oh. Everything else you do is good, but those movies. Um, <laughs> Robert Wisdom. I think he is actually. Um, I think he's in an episode of How I Met Your Mother, playing ang- uh, stereotypical angry captain. He is. Yep, McCracken. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Uh, I can yeah. see him doing that really he's, well. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, he yells at Barney. Um, Margaret Cho, who I believe is yeah. predominantly a comedian. Yes, that that's true. Uh, she, I think, this was very early in her career. I believe she was mostly a stand-up comedian. Uh, made some inroads into acting i believe she's back on that uh honestly like, like i think she's started doing that again very recently um and yeah she very low key in this film she's just kind of she has like a zinger uh, and she kicks a dude um uh, but beyond that she's just kind of office gal um so i have to assume this was like really early days for her in in hollywood or la is Oh man, I don't think it's her. Uh, I was gonna say there's a there's a woman in here that uh, I think is the assistant. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I thought I she, don't know who plays her. I thought her name is Romy Wathal. She actually passed away a couple years ago, but I thought that was the uh, the hooker you ass punched in uh, Deuce Bigelow. But it's not. It's a different person. <laughs> uh huh. I I know I've definitely seen her before. I couldn't tell you where exactly. Mm. Um. Yeah, where, where do you want to go from here? Action sequences? I mean, the opening well, action I, sequences. I gotta point out. I gotta point out one last person. Oh, well, two actually. One, Thomas Jane. Uh, we did mention oh, him yeah. on our Punisher review. That's a funny little coincidence there, where Thomas Jane uh, has a credit on a film in the form of Face Off with with John Travolta, albeit one where I don't think they were ever on set together because uh, all of their scenes are separate. Um, and then the other big one is Chris Bauer, uh, mm. who we have talked about previously in the form of 8mm, also a Nick Cage film. So a reunion of the two of them, and they get physical in both films. Uh, and yeah, he plays a Machine. Yeah, you had a sex sandwich with his wife and sister. 
You had a sex sandwich with his wife and his sister the night he was sent here. Yeah, he plays the character of Dubov, um, who is largely just a, I don't know, just a, a big goon in this movie for the most part. Although he is like pivotal uh, to like one of the major action sequences. Uh, but yeah, I think that's about it as far as uh, people worth mentioning. Although one more, one more, got to mention Tommy Flanagan. Um, he is Cicero uh, from Gladiator. Um, very, he has very prominent facial scars. Um, that he's he's popped up in a lot of movies. He always stands out because of that. That's just part of his face at this point. Um, pretty decent actor, though. Um, I feel like we're gonna offend some people if we don't mention this. Uh, John Bloom plays the prison doctor. You might know him as Joe Bob Briggs. Yes. Yeah. I, I've I've mentioned that on previous podcasts. I don't I don't remember exactly where, but yeah. Um, was it Oh Happy Day or <laughs> it's Caster Troy? It's Caster Troy. Oh yeah, he sounds like he sounds like Billy Bob Thornton. I'm like, that, that sounds like Billy Bob Thornton when he came in. Yeah, he's the idiot. Yeah, yeah he's the idiot that uh, works for uh, Robert De Niro in Casino, and he just has to fire him. He's like, you're fucking stupid. Yeah. Yeah, Joe Bob Briggs is great. He is a wonderful presence in in the film world. Uh, I don't know how many acting credits he has, but he a has lot. like two lines of dialogue <laughs> in this film. Um, and they are memorable. Yep. <laughs> yep. Them. The act, this is going to be controversial. I'm not crazy about John Woo's action sequences. I know that that's what you're here for. Mostly is his action sequences. I'm not an action sequences guy, uh, but it's just too much slow motion for me. Like it's a lot of slow-mo uh, and you know, he does get some cool looking shots, like the jumping with two guns, the sliding with two guns. He's very good at the two gun, the two gun shots. Um, <laughs> And they are like, they're just absolute chaos. Like, just the editing is just blah 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 blah. blah. It's it's a bit much for me, but I'm I know that you have a different different opinion. I'm not saying it's stupid. I'm just saying it's it's not for me as much. No, I I mean his style is chaotic. somewhat antiquated. It, it's chaotic and it's somewhat antiquated by today's standards because these days. I think clarity is valued a lot more than it used to be where you could you could get away with a lot more before we're mm -hmm. just like having lots of squibs and lots of explosions going off just lots of particles of wood and glass flying around the screen <laughs> would would give you something you know um even if it doesn't make a lick of sense here but these days it's like we're we're in like john wick territory now where we have film entire two and a half hour films built around the the premise of pulling the camera back and taking it easy on the cuts just to show the artfulness of the technique and the action that's playing out to like really show the process from a to b to c mm -hmm. whereas john woo's style tends to favor like lots of quick cuts lots of slow motion lots and lots of pyrotechnics um reloading is something is optional most of the time although in the opening portion of this movie that's not really the case oh no um I'll, I'll say this much. Um, the action in this film is quite good from time to time, um, but largely doesn't, like, almost none of his American films can hold a candle to, to his Hong Kong stuff. Like, it's there's just a, a different quality to it. Um, the Like, the rigging of the pyrotechnics and stuff is pretty spectacular. The choreography, it, like, I was never discombobulated or, or like, 
set adrift in terms of like understanding the flow of the edit um but there is like a somewhat herky-jerky like stilted nature to it because of the the frequent speed ramping and stuff um so it's it's weird to come back to now in 2024 just because we've come so very far Um, but at the time you just need to remember in 1997 this was like mind-blowing revolutionary kind of shit in hollywood um like i i mentioned at the top i'm like i kind of wish that nick cage could have just had we could have just had him playing caster troy and i I'd same with sean archer i think that travolta is good as i i think he's actually doing a pretty good job playing uh sean archer the fbi agent he is bitchy as hell like he is pissed off the whole time uh and i'm like that's uh, he's pretty good at it I, it's convincing but when they switch i think Nick Cage is probably a little bit better doing his Sean Archer than uh, John Travolta is doing Caster Troy because, like you said, like Caster. In all fairness, like it's kind of hard to embody Nicholas Cage, a Nicholas Cage character, without directly mimicking him. If that makes any sense, like he would just be doing a, a Nick Cage impression because he's just doing crazy Nick Cage as. The, the character if that makes sense yeah I, i'm inclined to agree i think in terms of performances we mentioned that john travolta does get kind of cringy like when he yeah. reaches too far in his in his version of caster troy in it like overall i think nick cage is the winner in terms of yeah. just his both the material like just on the page and and the way he handles it i think he just gets all the good shit um because like as an actor he i mean he famously kind of has a passion for acting that seems very genuine Mm -hmm. um like say what you will about the choices he makes in terms of accepting roles and whatnot but like he's he's had plenty of interviews where he's kind of shown his true colors and shown that like he's he loves this shit and he likes taking chances he and a lot of a lot of his co-stars have complimented him on that like Christian Slater in particular, I think, had a lot of nice things to say about him. Nice. Um, and uh, Ethan Hawke also. Um, I don't. I don't remember if they did work together, but I know from afar he admired him. But like Nick Cage gets to do things like in the same breath, go from like wild, manic, animalistic intensity to crying, basically. Yeah. And he gets to do that multiple. T- he gets really juicy acting moments where he gets to express grief, he gets to express rage, and he gets to fly back and forth between those emotions like at the drop of a hat. So, really, like actually, kind of juicy acting kind of stuff. Whereas John Travolta, as both characters, honestly, just doesn't get afforded the same luxuries. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think his best work is when he's when he's tired and haggard, Sean mm-hmm. Archer. When he's bitchy, Sean Archer. Yeah, because he does it really well. Mm-hmm. Like, like when he's when he's got like stubble and he look he looks like he's been up all night, mm-hmm. and he just has a, a snappiness to it that it actually plays really really well. It hasn't been recovered yet. But it doesn't it doesn't help when Nick Cage's imitation of him is the better imitation. Yeah, because <laughs> like seeing Nick Cage be so subdued and talk talking from the front of his mouth like talking like he has big john travolta lips yeah you you see him in there and it's so weird seeing him be so subdued but then you have to remind yourself it's like oh yeah he's he's not supposed to be nick cage here and he's actually doing it he's doing it justice like he does seem like kind of tired beat up 
John Travolta here. Yeah. I wonder if they're like, okay, John was like, okay, you're going to play the subdued version first. I'm going to make you edge the whole time, and then I'll let you be Caster Troy at the end, and you can just have that explosion of energy out. <laughs> I feel like it would be so, because it would be unfortunate if they filmed it like linear and like, okay, first you're going to be Caster Troy. You get to have all the fun. You get to have a flight attendant suck on your tongue. Uh <laughs> I understand the chiclets. Like, it, I don't even know if he chews those. I think that might just be the noise. Because the noise of chiclets in the box, it is a nice noise. I, I, I can completely get that. Uh, <laughs> um, do you want to, I guess, do you want to talk about the characterization of the character, Caster Troy? Yeah, I, I have some questions, actually, that I'm curious how you weigh in on it. Because um, the first time we see him in the film is the first shot of the film, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the carousel. The mustache, sequence, yeah. <laughs> The mustache. So we get to see Nick Cage with a bushy mustache, which I don't know, man. <laughs> like I think he had one of those in that World Trade Center movie as well. He was playing a firefighter. It's oh, yeah. it's, it's what you do. Um, but um, he, the the way the way the shots are structured in there, I I'm not entirely certain, and I think it's probably supposed to be that way. Like you're not sure what's going through his head, like. There's almost like a comedic beat where he's looking through a sniper's scope. He's pointing a rifle at John Travolta, who's on a carousel with his son. Um, and Nick Cage is preparing to shoot him. And there's this moment where the camera pulls back and he he look, looks kind of wistful. And then he looks down and then we cut back to the carousel. And then when we cut back, we see a straw rise up into the frame <laughs> then we see nick cage sucking on a, a like a soft drink yeah and then he goes back to looking down the scope and i say it's borderline comedic because you can interpret that as like at first you think he's like oh man i don't want to shoot a kid and then and then the camera pulls back and he's it's not that he's he's reaching for his soda yeah his mis- <laughs> he, he like- got a mi- mr pib i feel like he'd be he wouldn't go dr pepper he would just go mr pib He's like, yeah, excuse me while I hit this up. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes back to looking down the scope and then he shoots anyway. But then, but then they have that last shot of him after the shots fired and spoiler alert, uh, John Travolta's son gets killed. The bullet goes through his back and through his fucking hits through his kid's head. It's probably, it's, it's a crater. I'm sure Um, they don't show it, but you know, that kid's head is just nuked. Um, but then they cut back to Nick Cage as Caster Troy, and he does kind of like give a look of like regret or sorrow of some sort. Yeah. But then the the rest of the movie, he is a monster. Yeah. Like Caster Troy is a shitbag. Like yes. he is a he is the devil, and he is actually framed as the devil in this. Like like he is supposed to be like the antithesis of the Sean Ar- Archer character. Yeah. And at every turn, it seems like you start to think he's like got humanity, but then he shows you he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he he is a domestic terrorist who has like cocaine drug lord uh, style, basically. Like he he has like gold plated guns with like some kind of engraving. He's got red these sunglasses, uh, these red tinted glasses. His it's like a is it suede or like a velvet suit that he's got like it's it, it has a i don't know what material but it has like an iridescent quality to yeah. it like like if if you were to shine a light across it it would it would take on it would swirl with color and light yeah uh the man's got style uh he he's got a bag he of thinks dr- he does he thinks he does <laughs> leopard um, print pillows kyle 
<laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. And he's quite arrogant. Uh, bit bit high on himself. A little egotistical. But he does love his brother, uh, who is just a normal-looking guy for the most part. But, yeah, he is... Um, let's see here. What else does he do? Uh, he definitely uh, grabs his... Um, his uh, assistant's butt uh, at one point, which is a fireable offense, clearly. Um, he teaches his nemesis's daughter to avoid sexual assault by telling her to take this butterfly knife, stick it in somebody's leg, twist it so the wound won't heal. I've always wondered if that's true. <laughs> I'm like, is that true? I, I have to assume it is. Um, he also promotes smoking in the 90s, which yes. is a big no-no. Yeah. Um, um on top of that, he kills a lot of uh, Sean Archer's former co-workers. Burns them I, alive. Yeah. <laughs> Burns them... Again, he's... So, themes. John Woo is a mite religious. Just just a skosh. Okay. Just, just a little bit. Like He's been to church. Um, Catholic imagery is very commonplace in his films. And this one is some of the most overt and explicit you'll see. In, across his filmography honestly we got doves we have a church we got jesus on the cross hell when caster troy dies at the end of this movie he's doing the fucking pose and he yeah. gets i think he gets stabbed underneath the rib a very deliberate shit he is he's the debo uh, caster troy i think is supposed to be the debo in this movie even his lair like it kyle is this a Warner Brothers film? I didn't check. Oh, I don't know. Uh, no, it's a Paramount film. Paramount, okay. It's a Paramount film. So the reason I mentioned that is because the the second floor of Caster Troy's lair in this film looks so similar to Two Face's lair from Batman Forever to me. Mm. I think it's that semicircle in the background or something, and okay. that very Schumacher esque like tapestry on the back or whatever. Anyway. Castor Troy, Castor Troy does like virtually every bad thing that he he indulges in sin. Yeah. Um, he does all the things that Kyle said, and quite a lot more. And on top of that, like because it's a movie, from time to time he, despite being so vile and awful, he can't help but be kind of entertaining mm-hmm. in that kind of like Joker sort of way. I hate to say it, man, but but that shrug he does after he shoots the lady on the yeah. plane. Yeah, that that is like one of the funniest shots of Nick Cage I've ever seen. <laughs> I I like the uh, I like his his execution of actually shooting her. His ah, like he does that funny <laughs> ah. ah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. Kyle just did a perfect impression. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty funny. Um, his I, I Steph was um, fixing up some breakfast real quick, and I was trying to watch this on the laptop, and it was the beginning part. She started giggling because the the choir is happening. She's just like, "What? Like, what is happening in that movie?" I'm like, "Oh, you don't know. Like, this is a this is one of the crazier parts of the movie. Here, I'll show you." He head him head banging as the preacher or as the priest is pretty. I, I've always thought that that was a funny funny image. I like his walk. The the yeah shimmy. the shimmy over there. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's just all around evil. Um, but I feel like when he becomes Sean Archer, he kind of appreciate. Or yeah, when he becomes Sean Archer, he kind of appreciates his his situation. He's like, now I'm in the FBI, and he 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 tones it down a little bit as best as he can. Um, he's just like, no, I can make a go of this. Like this could actually help out a lot, which is pretty kind. Of, it 
it's a good move, but it just unfortunately it subdues the the Castor Troyness. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to see him like take such a a big turn from being so wild and out of control to being so covert in mm-hmm. how he's being and how he's carrying out his evil from there on out. Um, but it's it's compelling. Like part of part of what's what I value about this movie that maybe some people would object to is the is its focus on character is like you need to remember like a big part of the first half of this movie is uh there is a bomb planted in downtown la that is threatening to destroy the whole fucking city Mm -hmm. and the way the movie handles that is by almost ignoring it at times (laughs) because that's not the objective like john woo isn't that's that's a plot device that the only reason we have that is because it's it's the reason we have our characters trade faces like we need a reason for that to happen but really all john Woo is interested in is is exploring these two characters explore the lives of one another um and that's a really common theme in his filmography is this kind of like exploration of duality like it's even in even in the handful of john Woo movies that that i've made you watch Kyle like that's that's a prominent theme where there's the cop and the robber who are portrayed as being kind of like two sides of the same coin and we kind of have that here too where it's it's kind of fascinating to see these two characters live in the other one's shoes for I think it's supposed to be about a week and just see the way that they they handle one another's situations and Mm -hmm. and also it's interesting to see like like you said, like a domesticated Castor Troy. Like yeah. See, see, like, see how that kind of psychopath would handle things? He handles a candlelit dinner. But, I mean, he is a sociopath, so I guess he can just... He can wear another man's skin and just, you know, get off. It's fine. Um, can we do, real quick before I forget, can we do our favorite line deliveries or just our favorite bits of dialogue? Because there are some choice, there's some choice stuff in here. Well, I mean, anytime Nick Cage is yelling in this movie, because mm-hmm. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think you better pull the trigger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's like looking into a mirror, but not. It's uh, that. Yeah. It's like looking into a mirror, only not. That that one's bad. <laughs> I I think the two best John Travolta as Caster Troy is. Uh, it's okay. This man clearly had a traumatic childhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, one that got me this time was um, so Castor Troy. Like we do the face transplant operation, which, by the way, is a set piece in this movie. Like it's yeah. multiple minutes of screen time. It's actually kind it, of a cool it's good. Scene. Yeah, it's cool. I liked it. Like, yeah. and the girlfriend liked it, and she's a she's a stickler for science, and, yeah, like medical stuff. Like she, I'm surprised her bullshit detector didn't like go. Rip, rip, rip. Like yeah. she was okay with it. Yeah. Um. We had I had I enjoyed watching that still. Like it, it's just I love that there's no dialogue for the most part during that sequence. Mm-hmm. They just show it to you and you figure it out. That's good stuff. You don't get that all the time. Um. But yeah, the, what I was trying to get to there was, Castor Troy, immolates. All of Sean Archer's friends, all of the people who knew of the face transplant, he burns them alive. Alive. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's that bit where he, as Sean Archer, now he is John Travolta, he comes back to the office. It's to interrogate his own brother, mm-hmm. Cass, uh, Pollux Troy. And he walks into the interrogation room 
And Margaret Cho's like, oh man, did you hear about Tito? Like, he got set on fire, he's dead. Like, one of our best friends at the office is dead. And he's like, oh, you know, shit happens. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like sipping his coffee. I was like, that is really fucking funny. Yeah. I do like the, uh, when they get the bomb, and he's like, do you have a message for the enemies? Oh yeah, I've got a message. And it's it's literally like a Mean Gene, is it Mean Gene Okerson uh, interview? Um, Okerlund. Okerlund, Okerlund, yeah. Uh, and he, uh, he's just like, oh yeah, i got a message for him. Sorry, our side has the bomb. <laughs> I always hear Jim Carrey whenever yeah, he does that. I do too. It's what, yeah. Something I, about the the chin. Yeah. I mean, John Travolta has a very prominent chin, also. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that? Did you ever watch that live action Flintstones movie with uh, John yeah. Goodman? Uh, yeah. Kyle MacLachlan is the bad guy, and he's kidnapped the parrot, and he's just like, "Have I ever told you you have a very distinguished chin?" <laughs> just like, Shut up. Yeah, you know i I remember watching quite a few of those. 90s mm. uh nick at night throwback movies like that for some a lot of stuff from the 60s and 70s and stuff was being adapted to to film brady like bunch a lot of TV yeah. shows yeah brady bunch leave it to beaver flintstones all that business was finding its way into theaters around then and i remember like a lot of them were pretty good yeah like, like brady bunch in particular is very good and flintstones i remember i remember it actually being halfway decent i yeah. mean it had some really talented people in it for sure oh there's yeah there's like oh they're bowling and he's just oh he's bowling that's funny john goodman bowling in another movie uh yeah he's like yeah you feel about <laughs> it <laughs> donnie please um yeah no they're like uh how you feeling fred you feeling lucky he's like hey is the earth flat <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh that resonates yeah. differently these it days. does it hits much differently now um, <laughs> yeah. So, but the one that gets me—it's just—it's from Nick Cassavetes. Um, it's such a weird thing oh. to ask the uh, he's inter- being interrogated by John Travolta uh, as Sean Archer, and he's just like, "Hey, Sean, how's your dead son?" And I'm like, "I know you're trying to get a rise out of him, but it's a weird way to frame it. He's dead. He there's he's there's nothing to be. So it it was just a weird way to ask it." Yeah, on on the subject of Nick Cassavetes' line deliveries, one of the best in the whole movie, if you ask me, goes to him. Yeah. And it's simply, no more drugs for, for that, that man. man. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I don't even know what the drugs are. I don't... I don't either! I was actually going to ask you that. I was like, Kyle, you would know. Kyle, you would know? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't... I'm guessing it's some kind of powdered hallucinogen which leads me to believe it's probably pcp i don't know yeah uh, so folks at home if you're not aware there's a sequence here where nicholas cage as as he is now sean archer but he's wearing caster Troy's face he goes back to the bad guy's lair the debo's lair and he's hanging out with nick cassavetes and they're drinking stuff it, it's like blue pills that they open up and white powder comes out into presumably like tequila or something and then he starts to get loopy as shit. Yeah. And this is where the, I want to take his face off yeah. happens. And then that bit where he's looking in the mirror and he's making the creepy Nick Cage face. Yeah. And he almost shoots Gina Gershon. Yeah. I, uh, it, from what I'm reading from medlineplus.gov, it says it's an illegal street drug that usually comes, in the, comes as a white powder, which can be dissolved in alcohol or water. So that seems to make PCP? the most sense. Yeah. There you go. Because this is not how you would do cocaine. 
this is like no uh, that doesn't make sense no i mean i don't all i know comes from movies but i've never seen anybody drink cocaine if you cocaine ever, is to be snorted <laughs> there's a funny series or funny show that was on comedy central called uh this is not happening it's where comedians basically just tell true stories if you if you catch it mark Marin has a funny true story about a, a comedian uh <laughs> coming up that he went uh he did a few shows with, which was entertaining. The fascinating thing to me about this particular moment is he tied himself off and then he, he pulled some coke into the syringe and he hit himself. And like within like 30 seconds, he's like, and I'm like, oh no, now, now we're in trouble. He's like, this stuff's cut with baking soda. Well, I mean, speaking of the Debo's lair, uh, there's a big action sequence. Yeah, that was Like the, the movie doesn't have that many big action sequences but i like i like how big they are mm -hmm. uh, that's something that i miss in in action movies is i hate when a a, a scene doesn't have any time to breathe like it has no wiggle room because like it i don't know it robs me of a lot of enjoyment to have something qualified or classified as an action scene when it's literally matt damon hitting a guy three times it's like mm -hmm. that's not an action scene I, I blinked and i missed that it's like no you got you got to it has to be a set piece. You gotta, you gotta take me on a journey. And yeah, it's the airport opening is the first major one. It's pretty cool. Which I think is the um, best one, in my opinion. I think the apartment's my favorite. Okay. Um, but to each his own. Uh, the, <laughs> it's a great, it's a great opening on top, yeah. like on top of the the pyrotechnics and and all the the gun work and stuff. We also get like some well, helicopter action. Uh, we get to see John Travolta fly something, well, which I know he is a pilot. Just think about how much we learn. Just from the first ten minutes of the film, we get our both of our main characters, what they're like. You get an action sequence like this. It's building up to this opening action sequence. It really is a brilliant opening. It it definitely draws you in. Um, but yeah, yeah, it hits the ground running. Yeah, because like we set up with the opening moments of the film, the opening credits explain. Oh, this is why these two hate each other. Yeah, very simple. The dude, the dude shot him and killed his kid. Yeah. Presumably, he's a bad person for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Ipso facto. We see, yeah, and then we see him, you know, grab young ladies' butts and uh, shoot another lady in the head. It's okay. He's a bad he's guy. He's a bad we guy. See yeah, he might be bad. I think he might be a bad guy, Clown. <laughs> oh, but he tied his, his brother's shoes. He can't be all bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the airport sequence is pretty cool. We get some helicopter action. We get some gun work. By the way, those golden colts uh nick caster troy's handguns you could not play a video game from like 1997 to like 2005 without somebody modding those in like every mod of counter-strike ever had the golden colts every, every game ever had the golden colts just because those people they know who they are <laughs> thought that was the coolest shit ever <laughs> um, so th those were something that really registered with with some corner of like pop culture uh, folks and whatnot anyway that we have that we have the prison break um, which we didn't talk much about but actually quite a lot of this movie does take place in the prison it's probably the the dreariest soggiest part of the movie unfortunately yeah. it makes the least amount of sense in my opinion like yeah i i think on a thematic level what we're trying to do is like demonstrate like sean archer going to hell and pulling himself up out of it or something where it's like he was like on on the edge of paradise and then it got yanked away from him and he got he got kicked all the way off the mountain and he has to climb his way all the way back up yeah 
because like they really like it didn't register with me as a child but now it's like wow this movie is really mean to sean archer like like he gets he gets a shit deal uh for a huge portion of this movie because he's he spends like a third of the movie trapped in a fucking stinky prison cell (laughs) getting his ass beat constantly um but yeah he and dubov machine from eight millimeter they escape from prison it's a nifty little action sequence um a lot of pyrotechnics com- completely makes no goddamn sense because yeah. th- the big reveals that the prison take is on like an oil platform essentially mm-hmm. no you, you don't get to shore from that i'm sorry especially if a helicopter is tailing you because you know what that helicopter can do it can just kind of hover yeah and just like look down and see you clear as day it's like i see him swimming i see i could just keep following him yeah i could yeah i could i could could send a line down there and pick him up if you want (laughs) it's like (laughs) so it doesn't make a lick of sense but yeah actually that's something we haven't talked much about that honestly i don't care to um but the apartment is like the next big major action sequence i think it's the highlight it's kind of weird though uh, because it seems like all of Caster Troy's friends just coincidentally have to be, happen to be friends of John Woo who have a stunt background or something because <laughs> they're doing the craziest shit in the movie and they're just like no name goons. And maybe it's the drugs they're on or something. I was gonna say they <laughs> all... they're like, there's this is where the guy slides on his back on the floor and the yeah. dudes are jumping over the bar and shit. They're doing crazy all, shit. All these friends just look like Vegas rejects, like people who just constantly lose at blackjack and they're just like, God damn it. Yeah. They look like the friends from Swingers. Yeah. They they look like they would hang out losers. with John Favreau yeah, exactly. and Vince Vaughn. Yes, losers. They're losers. People who play NHL on Sega Genesis all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a great franchise. I'm not besmirching the name of NHL on, on the Genesis. But, just, but yeah, losers. <laughs> I was thinking of Brody and Mallrats, and I'm like, speaking of Scientology, yeah. Oh, uh, Danny Masterson. Yeah. Oh, um, I was thinking John Travolta, but yeah, also him. <laughs> well, Danny Masterson also. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, a big part yeah. of that, anyway. too, apparently. Um, <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, uh, the apartment is cool. I, I do like that the movie actually makes an earnest attempt to have Sean Archer not kill his co-workers. Um, because most <laughs> yeah. of the people he's fighting with throughout, like, while he is posing as Caster Troy Artists, are yeah. people we see from his office. Yeah. And the movie, like, very deliberately shows him use, like, non-lethal means to handle most of them. Like, the girlfriend was getting antsy about that. She was like, he's not going to kill his friends, is he? I was like, he's going to do a... Maybe? He's going to do a, he's gonna do a <laughs> T-800 and just shoot them all in the knees. Like, they'll live. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? You son of a bitch! You shot me! He'll live. <laughs> Yeah, we were just talking about kneecapping cops. Which, um, you know. Yeah, so <laughs> something from this shootout that has always stuck with me as a as a kid and as an adult. I remember uh, Cassavetti's getting shot in the neck and like the blood coming out. I'm like, God damn! That was one of those like, oh, that's that's intense. But it, I think it's I think this was something as a kid that bothered me was knowing that somebody has a fatal wound, but they're still. Com- like they're still completely with it they appear to be completely with it but knowing that they're gonna die and that's kind of what he does here he's literally shot in the neck and he knows he's gonna die but he has enough you know in him to smooch his sister before he uh before he dies 
Yeah, uh, you know, his, with his final breath, he smooched his sister. <laughs> Jesus Christ. By the way, um, feels like a John Wooism of sorts. Um, he likes to mess with like juxtaposition of like beauty and and chaos and ugliness, kind of playing on top of each other. The whole apartment sequence has that bit where somewhere over the rainbow is playing. Yeah. Because uh, we're introduced to Caster Troy's son, uh, Gina Gershon's son, um, who he gets some headphones put on his ear and we actually get like diegetic music playing from his perspective. So we get the somewhere over the rainbow that he is hearing as everyone around him is being riddled with bullets and dying. Um, the montage that plays out there, I think is actually legitimately kind of artful and neat. Um, you easily could have done that dirty and made it grating and, and cringy, but I, I think they earned it there. And then I love the return to reality when, uh, Nick Cage tackles him off of the the lights, mm-hmm. and then the 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 score for the movie kicks back in. Um, that was just a neat bit of editing there, but yeah, uh, we get some of the most brutal violence in the film, like back to back to back here, where we get Nick Nick Cassavetes bleeding out through his throat, pretty gruesome, mm-hmm. and then we get Pollux Troy, Alessandro Nivola. We get his demise, which is logistically very awkward, if you ask me. Um, it it seems overly complicated because really all we're trying to do is drop him through the ceiling, like drop him through the, the glass ceiling onto the floor in front of his brother. But the way they executed <laughs> Kyle's making a face and I don't know why. Uh, Lionel Richie's Dancing on the Ceiling just popped in my head. It's such a good song, but it, it just popped in. <laughs> Shows Kyle's level of engagement with the conversation. He's got a Lionel Richie bop playing in his head. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Great music video too. A man lost his life, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you. So when Pollux gets out of prison, he's having a tongue sandwich, which as a kid I'm like, he's having a fucking what? A tongue sandwich. But him eating the sandwich while doing Do you have a meal that I I get like he I know he's excited because he's out of prison and he's eating a tongue sandwich, but like Part of it is because that sandwich is probably really, really good. Do you have a meal that you sit down and you have a bite and you're just like doing a... It's so good. Like it's doing that in your mouth. Ah, I mean, I'm trying to think because like, unfortunately, I'm not a, I'm not as much of a foodie as the girlfriend. So I, I, I don't get as much pleasure from from that yeah, kind of stuff. You, but you you eat in like a dis, you eat like a dystopian factory worker. You're just like here's my gruel with my hey cracker. man. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not as bad as Brad from the Sin of Sweet. Well, what does he? Do, let me get something. Is he does he only eat box macaroni and cheese? Yes, he subsists on box mac and Vienna sausage. Are you serious? Yes. Oh, I was. I, I, that was just a shot. Like, I, I, yeah, I had to every, get. Every penny saved is a penny put towards Blu-ray purchases. Oh my god! <laughs> and movie tickets. He's he's malnourished for his for his collection. Hey man, he's he must have some decent genetics. He's a runner. He can move. Like he has some agility and stamina. Yeah, I eat well, and I have DVDs for crying out loud. So let's see where hey, my priorities well, are. Yeah, I mean, maybe keep that to yourself. You mentioned that to him. He'll, he'll puke in his lap. <laughs> it's not, it's not going to be that. It's not going to be that much. Yeah, Brad, if you're listening, we're just having fun. Yeah, we're just having <laughs> we, fun. We huh? like you, and we want to have you back on the show very soon. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, 
<laughs> no, I don't think I have a meal that would elicit that sort of response from me. But it is adorable to watch him do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's done a little chick. By the way, Kyle, I have seen you do that. Like, I don't know if you've seen yourself do that, but I have seen you do that. I and I do... I can tell you the story right now because I, I imitate you to the girlfriend oh, nice. every chance I get. I go, I'm getting pizza. You're getting pizza. <laughs> I'm getting pizza. <laughs> your, your neck stiffens up and you give a little nod. No, I'm getting pizza. Yeah. <laughs> you know why? Because pizza is a perfect food. It takes, if you're getting, if you're ordering it, you absolutely have nothing you have to do. It comes in ready to go. You can eat it at any temperature. Any temperature, it, it can be piping hot, it can be refrigerator cold, and it's just as good. It is a perfect food. It's the perfect food. And I think to provide context, I think there was a certain pizza place near where I used to live that you were in close proximity to, mm-hmm. and you knew what your plan was after we were finished doing the podcast. Barachi. Yep, just down the hill. Yep. Yep. Ah. Pizza. Pizza. <laughs> good ass pizza. Uh that I did not take advantage of. <laughs> you were talking. You were talking about Billy falling from the ceiling. Oh yeah, yeah, Billy. He didn't bring his parachute this time. Uh, he falls through the ceiling, and uh, yeah, he cracks his head on the floor. Uh, he dies uh, in front of his brother after the uh, the iconic um, Hall of Mirrors shootout, which I think is pretty good. Um, I like I like the the flips and flops that they both do, where it's like the choreography of that really could could have been dumb and just them like running from pillar to pillar taking cover, but it's a John Woo movie, so they're they're doing flips, they're rolling around on the floor and stuff, and uh, yeah, we have that bit where uh, he ties his shoes, he ties uh, Pollux's shoes after he sees his dead body, and then uh, a fella who I don't know very well, but his name is Matt Ross. He plays a lot of cops, as far as I understand. He was in The Aviator, uh, as well as uh, American Psycho. He is the fellow that uh, Patrick Bateman has the exchange with in the restroom, with the gloves. Yeah, Um, so he is... um, Yes, I do remember him from American Psycho. He is in a great little show called Silicon Valley, and he plays Gavin. I can't think of his last name, but he's a billionaire, basically. Uh, comparable to just like a, a CEO of Google. Like he's like super billionaire. Uh, and he is um, Pied Piper's nemesis throughout the series. Um, and he's, he's really good. He gets under your skin. He's a real, he's a real bitch in that show. Uh, good time. Good time. He... He must be more talented than, like, I haven't seen him in that many things, but for him to have worked with Scorsese and have have had that role, like, I, th- I think he's a very talented actor. Anyway, he shows up here and he gets the nastiest death probably in the entire film. <laughs> uh, the girlfriend actually let out a, a gasp. Uh, he gets <gasps> shot in the fucking forehead. And uh, the back of his head, blo- like, flips up, like a, a just like a flop of flesh and hair flies up to the back of his head. And then he just gives this delicious, like, as he falls to the ground. It's a nasty death. And it comes hot on the heels of, of Caster Troy losing his brother, where he's like, why are you, why are you so upset? That's just Pollock's Troy. And he's yeah. like, my brother, you piece of shit. Yeah, he, he shoots him, yeah. Yeah. And then also the, uh, the father-in-law, Mr. Lundergaard uh, mm. from Fargo, uh, has oh. his bit role in this movie. Uh, he, Fargo's so great. I, I, 
you know what? I I was he was doing the right not the right thing. His heart was in the right place, but I'm glad he's dead. Like he he needed to be shot. <laughs> I'm glad you're dead. I'm glad you're dead. <laughs> um yeah, speaking of assholes, Matt Damon in Interstellar. Whew. God. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, almost like mentioning his presence in that movie. It's like it, it's basically a spoiler, but it's like, yeah, Matt Damon's in this movie. He's not he's, doing things you'd expect Matt Damon to do unless he's seen The Departed. He's so he's re, he comes in for just that little bit. He's he's very important to the plot, but yeah, he is a piece of shit in that movie. But anyway, yeah, Lundergaard gets it. Uh, I think he has a heart attack. He's starting to have a heart attack, and he just like does he help the heart attack? Uh, it seems like he has a heart condition, mm-hmm. and he uses that as as an excuse to like he he chops him in the back of the neck and then elbows him in the sternum and then says oh he had a heart it's like does forensics not work in la oh oh, yeah by the way he just shot an fbi agent in the fucking forehead with presumably his his own sidearm there it's like you know maybe some amount of investigating should happen here by the way i i misquoted uh brad from the cinema speak podcast would probably get right up my ass on this it's not mr lundergaard it's mr gustafson damn it Fucked up. Mr. Lundergaard is William H. Macy. Yes. It's just yes. the more memorable name to me. Lundergaard, Gustafson, what are we doing here? Like, it's... Yeah, it's almost like it's in the Midwest or something. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Uh, I had a friend whose last no name... No genie, no money. <laughs> I had a buddy who was from North Dakota. His last name was Odegaard. Uh, oh, there's Jesus. A theme. There's a theme up there. Um, but yeah, so I think the most unrealistic thing in this movie is Nicolas Cage as Sean Archer convincing his wife that he is not Castro Troy and he's just like what my, my blood type is this you got to you got to get the blood type and fight she wouldn't be listening she'd be traumatized to Joan Allen's credit that is kind of how she plays the scene mm-hmm. she doesn't say anything she's just like glued to her chair shivering with fright and just paralyzed like Mm -hmm. he's just talking at her in the hopes that she's hearing him i don't know that she is but i do like that the script has enough structure to it that they they do give themselves some ways to have him explain this to her without like peeling his fucking face off like like he does use the blood type and she does have a medical background which is nice like she does have access to these facilities because like really if you told just like some random person about blood type it's like the fuck am I supposed to look into that? Like I don't, I don't know anything about that. I don't have the facilities to like access that information. But they, they write it pretty well. And then like the when she does get around to checking into his blood type, um, he has that exchange with her where he tells her a story of when like they were early days dating and stuff, and it, it works well enough. Um, and also, I think her performance is pretty good. Like, she she does go to the level of emotional intensity that you would you would hope that they do. Like, when they... I like the bit where they go to the, the son's gravesite. Like, I, I like the build-up to that. Because it, it makes Castor Troy look like such a dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or or she, she, like, runs out behind him and she's like, where are you running off to this morning? He's like, oh, I... He, he doesn't ask like i don't know he just like kisses her as if like that's what she was asking for like oh i forgot to kiss you goodbye or something she's like no that's on his birthday i don't want that <laughs> to quote theo vaughn 
I don't want that. I don't want that. <laughs> we got to go to the gravesite, and she has a breakdown there. But yeah, uh, the pieces start to fall into place where it's like it. The whole FBI business with him killing Mister Gustafson and like ascending to the the height of power in the FBI is is again not especially important or necessary it's just like an escalation like nudging the movie across the finish line kind of but yeah the the finale is basically everybody who needs to know who each of these men actually are now knows and we have a showdown mm-hmm. like a contrived showdown but a showdown nonetheless it... i do like that we have that that last bit where caster troy has his like last opportunity basically to show some humanity or like the the signal to him that sean archer is coming for him is like a a kid at the church at the at the funeral service gives him his like the the photo of the son that he had killed and he looks at it and he smiles and he crumples it up and tosses it away it's like if if you were to show some glimmer of humanity there I think it would have like robbed the the narrative of some of its power. In this moment, it's like no, we it's solidified. Like Castor Troy is a hundred percent bad. Like yeah. he, there's no redeeming qualities to this man. Yeah, uh, Sean Archer, Nicholas Cage's Sean Archer uh, recruits Gina Gershon. He's like to to help him. She ends she ends up dying almost instantly. Um, but yeah, this the the whole last sequence. It this is long and drug out. There's a there's a boat chase. Yeah, yeah. A brick killed a guy. Yeah, a brick <laughs> killed a guy. <laughs> uh, I do like the. He does give him like I wasn't even trying. Like he times. So I wasn't even trying to kill your son. Son, I was just trying to kill you. It was incidental. Like it wasn't. It was an accident. I do like that line delivery from John Travolta, where he he very. He very deliberately spells it out. Yeah. He's like, "I wasn't trying to shoot. I wasn't trying to kill your son. Yeah. I was trying to kill you. <laughs> it was an accident. You could have moved on, but you didn't." He's like, "Maybe that's on you. <laughs> Maybe you're the bad guy." Yeah. It's like, "Okay, buddy. Like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Why are you coming after me?" <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's how he kind of tries to play it off. Which yeah. I guess you know, if, he, if he's like a narcissistic asshole or something, if he feels he's untouchable, and it's like. Yeah, maybe that is the attitude that he would have. But yeah, we have a quote Mexican standoff. I don't think that's PC by today's standards. Mm. But basically all it is, it's where a bunch of people hold up pistols to each other's faces. It was very, very in vogue in the 90s. This was inescapable in cinema in the 90s. Yeah. Um, but here we like dial it up to a comical extreme where we have like six people holding up guns at each other. It's like if if you were to turn this into like a geometric shape, this would be like a dodecahedron of, of Mexican standoffs or something. Anyway, everybody gets shot. Gina Gershon's out of the picture. She's dead. She takes a bullet uh, for Sean Archer, who is, again, wearing Caster Troy's face. Uh, Joan Allen gets to get in some action chops here. She gets to whack John Travolta with a chair. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's just, in the midst of all this gunfighting, you just see her go, ah! <laughs> Joan like, Allen's got God. a chair! <laughs> By God, Joan Allen with the wooden chair! <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, Tommy Flanagan eats shit here. Um, and yeah, the the whole rest of the movie is just man on like man against man. It, it's yeah. they're finally in the same room together. You get to see them shoot at each other again, okay. um, and like go at it. Uh, Dominic Swain gets wrapped up in all the business as well. 
uh, twice, in fact. Mm -hmm. Um, She gets put in the... I, I don't know what you would call this trope, but it's like the I'm your father trope where mm-hmm. it's like there's an imposter and they keep switching places. It's like, I don't know which one to shoot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she shoots the wrong one. Yeah. I'm your father. No, I'm, I'm your father. Listen to my voice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your father. <laughs> Sound like fucking Pinocchio or something. <laughs> father. Um, but yeah, she shoots the wrong dad, which is really funny. Uh, she shoots Nick Cage in the arm. And I... I I don't know what it is about this word choice, but it just makes me laugh. Um, John Travolta calls her a clod. I don't think I've ever heard anyone in modern times call anyone a clod, but for some reason, like, I want an excuse to call somebody that. But I'm not mean enough. I feel like that's that's kind of harsh. I think Aunt Edna calls Clark Claude. Not a Claude, just Claude in that first vacation movie. That's the only other time I've heard it used. Yeah, I mean, it, as far as I know, it's just like imbecile, basically, mm-hmm. or which is and, fitting <laughs> for Clark W. Griswold. Yeah, yeah, he's a buffoon. He's a buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, he's, he calls his daughter a clod. He's like clod, <laughs> and then he grabs her and he says, "No daughter of mine would shoot so wide." <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, yeah, then she demonstrates the very nice trick that he had taught her on her on him. And uh, he gets stabbed in the thigh and twisted. And one of the funniest bits in this movie, I don't know why this is so funny to me, maybe I'm a broken person or something, is watching John Travolta limp down down the walkway and a cop car pulls up and two, two <laughs> officers get out. And they say, are you all right, sir? And then he just pulls up a submachine gun and just... Just like, it's just not a word spoken. Just, and just this image of him like hobbling down the walk and the. <laughs> we watched the new uh, Hunger Games movie. I've never seen those films, but I watched the new. You watched the new one? Yeah, it's a, it's a prequel. We, there's nothing else to watch. Godzilla minus oh. one isn't available for streaming yet. I'm just waiting, just wait, twiddling my thumbs, waiting for it to become available. Uh, but there's some gratuitous violence in there, and we were both oh. laughing. Like, there's some like, oh, because it, it just comes out of nowhere, and it's like, oh, shit, that just came out of nowhere. <laughs> uh, we were definitely laughing at some of that. I mean, I don't know what it is, like, in, in fiction. Mm-hmm. Like, not in real life, obviously. No, 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 but, no, like, no. in fiction, when things escalate so sharply, there's just a, I think, just an inherent human response to kind of giggle. Because, like, sometimes you see, like, the saddest shit ever, and the first thing that happens is you kind of, like, start to giggle a little bit, and yeah. then it kicks in, like, oh, that's not appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, uh, uh, But, yeah, just watching him mow down these cops, like, without a word said, just made me laugh so hard this I time. I think it's the beginning of Archer Season 4. Uh, they do a crossover with Bob's Burgers, where he's... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very funny. Uh, there's some v- that episode has some crazy Archer violence. It's very funny. Like, if, did I give you season three? You have season four yeah, yet? It, I need yeah, to get you season I've four. I've got season three queued up. Season four might be just the it's perfect. It's it's the best season. I uh, mean, by by sitcom logic, it's usually like around three is where they hit their stride. So that makes some sense. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah the the boat. I think there's a crossbow. Yeah, the there's some licking of the face. Yeah, uh, we have a speedboat chase, which is not something you get every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of a curious way to end the film, honestly. Yeah. It's-, um, it's not really teased at any point. Like, you never could have seen this coming, that this would be the final action beat. Um, f- for what it's worth, it's executed well. Like, 
again, we said this last week talking about the Mask of Zorro, seeing the way that they had to shoot everything practically, like actually seeing two guys, they're obviously not John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, but seeing two stunt players like wrestling on top of a very fast moving speedboat and stuff and like getting launched off of explosions and ramps and stuff. It's kind of cool just seeing like there's actual danger and logistics in terms of camera positioning and timing and stuff involved. It's, it's, there's a lot of craft involved that is evident just in watching the film. Um, boat stunts are always kind of tricky to me just because I don't know, there's, there's something about the, the pace and the energy of them that feels somewhat lackadaisical at times. Uh, in this case, they shoot it well enough that you never really get that sense. And there's some pretty awesome moments in here. Like I, I like the bit where they go under the dock that looked fucking nuts like the the clearance on like the left and right side of the speedboat was very little <laughs> like that was a very small hole to get through um but yeah they they crash the boat and they get uh launched onto a beach together they have a bit of a scrap uh and yeah the the killing blow comes via a uh, i think it's a harpoon gun mm-hmm. um but uh caster troy catches it before it releases from the gun and we have that last exchange between the two of them where he grabs it's like a piece of fiberglass or something and uh, he starts to cut off his own face mm-hmm. i'm curious what the plan was there like was he really gonna t-800 himself but <laughs> don't replace the arm with the face i don't really have a plan uh <laughs> <laughs> i'm just kind of winging it it's kind of winging it at this point <laughs> I mean, Caster Troy easily could have said that, and it yeah. would have fit. <laughs> yeah. He hadn't pulled out the staple gun yet. <laughs> yeah, he has that line where he's like, like, I forget exactly, but he's basically threatening him, saying, like, I'm going to take my own face off so you can't get it back. Mm-hmm. So, like, in my last act, I'm going to defile your your personage. Uh, and, yeah, he kicks him in the nuts, I think, and, the, and then the harpoon goes under the rib, very Jesus-y. Um, and uh, we get that reprise of I'm ready for the big ride, uh, which he had done earlier in the film. Yeah, yeah, it's a little obnoxious. It's too obnoxious. Um, Even for Nick Cage, it's too obnoxious. I like it better coming out of John Travolta because he's doing his dead face. Mm-hmm. Where it's like you could, he's sputtering, his his eyes are glassed, like he, he's on his way out. <laughs> but yeah, uh, long story short, yeah. They adopt the kid. They just comes home with this kid. And uh, everything is fine. The family is all better now. Yeah, Jamie has cleaned up her act. She's no longer got makeup and piercings. Um, We have angelic backlighting and just like beams of light pouring in through the the windows. It, It looks weird. Like it looks it looks like the end of a Nightmare on Elm Street movie or something. Yeah, she's going. She went through another traumatic experience uh, as a teenager when heroin is possible. That's the next step for this character. That's that's her next move. She's gonna be homegirl from traffic, just smoking crack. <laughs> that that's what the girlfriend was saying. Was like, one, her her brother got executed. Um, two, her dad was not really her dad for a week and then oh yeah they both they both tried to kill her at some point and (laughs) he licked her fucking head yeah he licked her head definitely made very very suggestive advances towards her uh and yeah she stabbed him the guy who looks like her dad in the leg like that's a lot 
for a 16 or yeah, 17 no, year she, she's through. she's a mess she's a mess uh, she she is she's not okay and joan um, allen yeah, and also <laughs> yeah i was gonna say joan allen definitely had sex with uh the man who murdered her son that that will put you in the loony bin on its own yeah, like I said, <laughs> like there's a lot of things that are the movie tries to downplay. That's like no, <laughs> that was a really big deal. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the girlfriend had some comments about uh, them adopting the boy. Uh, Caster Troy's son, Sean Archer, adopts because he no longer has parents. Both mm-hmm. of them are dead. Um, and girlfriend was like, not without a big long talk yeah. <laughs> you don't just show up with a kid <laughs> i brought a kid today <laughs> yeah yeah I, I, it's not a puppy it's a it's a little boy he talks <laughs> oh yeah also uh, explain the plot of big daddy to somebody uh to to the younger generation yeah. oh yeah wow. john stewart dad john stewart deadbeat dad yeah. <laughs> uh but yeah, that's that's all I have really for the face off. Hip hop anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh yeah, that's about it for face off. Uh, I think we joked around a lot about this one. I I love this movie, not in the same like glowing sort of way that I love Mask of Zorro now. Mm-hmm. Like I adore that movie. I just I just love this one just because it's so familiar. Mm-hmm. It has plenty of flaws. Like there are much better action movies out there. I don't know if there are better American John Woo movies, although that's a slim category, so it's yeah. not the hugest of praise. Um, but the point is, I have a long history with this one. Kyle does too. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's just like forever ingrained. It's just kind of like a special nostalgia movie, like warts and all. Um, yeah, worth a watch, I'd say, though. I mean, the, the girlfriend had never seen it before. She's not exactly well-versed in 90s action cinema. So if it worked for her probably work for a lot of people um yeah. but anyway uh yeah that was it for our frame of reference month um do you want to go ahead and reveal what who we're going to be talking about in march kyle yeah it's kind of a it's kind of a dual month i think it's going to be a little bit of woody harrelson a little bit of uh, wesley snipes i feel like there's some there's gonna be a little crossover but i think the the spotlight will mostly be on mr harrelson yeah, I, I think Woody is our primary, but it just so happens there's quite a lot of films that he did with Wesley Snipes. Um, mm-hmm. So you get a, a one-two punch there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, mostly Woody is what we're going <laughs> to... Maybe Most, that's the name of the month. Mostly, mostly Woody. Woody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Woody Harrelson is going to be uh, the prime subject uh, for our discussions in March. Uh, but yeah, look forward to that. In the meantime, though, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other catching up on cinema content you can find all of that on our website at catchinguponcinema.com uh, you can also find us on the social medias in the form of the twitter at catching cinema that's also the x by the way whatever they're calling it these days uh, as well as the instagram at catching up on cinema uh, so feel free to hit me up at either of those uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much every platform you can imagine including bitcade uh, so fucking google it mm-hmm And that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.